Welcome to our weekly Church on the Rock podcast. For more information, visit us at churchak.org, download our Church on the Rock AK app, or like us on our Facebook page. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy our weekly podcast. Man, how you guys doing? Okay, um, I, I don't know if you've noticed this, uh, but you get a Bill Pagarin up here. Man, that guy's just lit up. Like, and I don't even think he had coffee this morning. Now, he IV drips it all night long while he's in bed, but like, he shows up and he shows up. Like, um, and I, I noticed something. Like, when that happens, you seem to respond to it. Like, he didn't tell anyone. Okay, now clap. He was just like all fired up, and you're like, I, got, I feel like I have to clap right now. <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> here's, what, here's what it tells me. Um, uh, we actually are people who love to be moved to passion. We actually are very emotional creatures. Uh, I, I, I don't know if you know this. Often it's sort of purported. I don't know exactly what that word means. I'm going to use it. Um, you can text me later and tell me what it, uh, but it's actually, you know, said that men are not emotional like women are. Women are super emotional. I don't know if you know that. <sighs> oh my goodness. So emotional. And what, here's what people really mean. What they really mean is that, um, that women have lots of emotions, but men are every bit as emotional. They just express it through one emotion primarily. I bet you can't guess which one it is. Anger. Yeah. Nobody, nobody yelled at it. It's joy. I'm sure it's, Men are every bit as emotional, uh, right? Uh, um, now, of course, we're more logical uh, <laughs> till we're not, right? Um, it, it was interesting being at Men's Summit this, this weekend. I love this event. It's, it's easily one of my favorite events of the year. And here's, here's the reason. I get to be in a room. I think we had 250 men register. I think it was 218 that showed up. Um, but they show up. And I get to watch this every single year, and this year was no exception. I get to watch a group of men, like we're talking men, right? Um, uh, most of them could sneeze and grow a beard right now. Uh, like, and <laughs> that isn't an evidence that you're a man. But anyways, um, uh, and, and here's what I love. You just give them a few moments, and then you, in, you, you enter into this time of worship. And I don't know if you know this, but, but men don't sing. That is so untrue. Like, like when the band just stops and we go a cappella, you can hear these men belting it out at the top of their lungs, worship to Jesus. And this is going to blow your mind. But even with their hands raised, I know, like, like you didn't think the Holy Spirit was real? Like, anyways, so I love the event. But here's my favorite part. My favorite part is we try and give an opportunity, a moment in our services at some point for men to be transparent with one another. And, and this is true. The word uh, vulnerable is a terrifying word to men. And yet, I get to watch this every single year. 
a group of men, many of whom do not know each other, just happen to be sitting beside somebody that sat down in the room because every seat's taken, right? And they sit down together. And now I ask them, I want you to share what your greatest fear is with the guy next to you. Go ahead, it's your turn. And I walk away and you can't get them to stop. Like they start sharing with each other, willing to be transparent, willing to be vulnerable, and then praying for each other. You just can't beat it. Like I, I love it. And our hope is at this event every year, that we create moments for men that translate into momentum and movements for them in the future, right? This is just an event, but if it only stays there, then we actually don't get to experience everything that we were created to experience. Now, um, we get all done with that, and I just think it's super cool. Like, I mean, it's it's appealing. It's attractive when men are in touch with their emotions, who they are, right, and, and willing to be vulnerable. And so we wrap up men's conference, and then we send sexy back home to their spouse or wherever they're going, which is also my title today, Bringing Sexy Back. Um, uh, we're in the Song of Songs. Um, if you know much about the Song of Solomon, maybe is the way it's described in your Bible. Um, but this poetry, it's Hebrew poetry. It is a beautiful love story between a shepherd and a shepherdess, or at least so you think in the beginning of the story. They fall in love out taking care of the sheep. She's out in the sun all day long, but this young shepherd is someone that she adores, and they figure out how to get their flocks together, right? And, and, and then he takes off. After their love has started to blossom, he takes off, and she doesn't know where he's gone. And as you read through it, it's worth taking some time to understand how the play because it's written much in the format of a Greek play, how the play is sort of broken up into sections. You get into chapter three, verses one through five. She has a dream, like, where did my beloved go? I've got to go find him. I'm going to get up in the middle of the night and go search the streets for him. And then you discover that King Solomon is coming to visit all the shepherds out in the field. And the young women come to her and say, the king is here, the king is here. And she's like, I don't give a rip about the king. I just want my shepherd boy back. Where did he go? But finally, she goes to see King Solomon and discovers he is the shepherd boy. Like, it's a Cinderella story, right? I mean, it's just a beautiful piece of poetry that's written, and it is explicitly about romance, love, and sexuality. That's why Jewish boys weren't allowed to read it until they were 18 years old. I'm going to do my best today to keep it in the PG, PG-13 kind of category, not like the 1980s PG, which was actually R, uh, but I'm going to try and keep it in, in there. My, two of my girls were in first service. They were just sitting right here staring at me. I was like, oh, Lord. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Like, uh, like I, Here's something, and, and you know this, um, but when it comes to understanding literature in particular, um, language is critical. And so I want to open with Gen Z and KJV. And, and, and language shapes culture. If you can't understand what's being said, it's really hard to not only embrace it, but then actually to apply it. And so um, uh, growing up as a kid, the King James version of the Bible was the primary version that people were using. And then, then they went to the new King James. Um, and, and I get it. There's, there's a whole group of people that are like, the King James is the only true version of the Bible. I'm just telling you, they're wrong. But there was some beauty in the poetic language of it. And I wouldn't say it's a 
bad translation. I would just say there's better translations out there. But my primary reason for typically not using the King James Version is because there's roughly 300 words that are no longer in use in the English language at all. So it can be real challenging to understand. But here's the King James Version of Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Versus his ear, or like, okay, mouth. For thy love is better than wine. Because of the savor of thy good ointments, thy name is as ointment poured forth, or fifth. Therefore do the virgins love thee. Draw me, we will run after thee. The king hath brought me into his chambers. I also want to show you the Gen Z Bible version of this particular passage, because there's a gap in language over the years. Now, I just want to say this. There are two versions of the Gen Z Bible out there. Maybe you've seen the TikToks or the Reels where the guy's reading, and, and there's one that is intentionally designed to be pretty funny, because it uses every slang and every saying that gen, all in one passage. But the one that I actually purchased here recently is a fairly good translation of the Bible in Gen Z lingo. Here's what it says. Song of Solomon, same passage, one, two, three. This is Solomon's ultimate banger. <laughs> the absolute fire anthem. I'm down for some mouth kisses. Because <laughs> your love game is top tier. Better than any fine wine your name is like a trending perfume because of how good you are, and that's why everyone is obsessed with you. Yo, capture my attention and let's go on this journey together. The king has invited me into his private place. If you're a Gen Xer, it's like into his crib, right? Like, like not everybody's going in there, right? Like, it's worth pausing for a moment and saying, if a generation were to capture what the Song of Songs is actually trying to communicate, language is important. Now, just for kicks and giggles, there's an online translator. If you ever want to write just like a love poem or a love letter to somebody, and you wanted it to be in Shakespearean English, there's an online translator. You can take whatever you wrote, plug it in, and it will translate it into, how many love yourself some good old English Shakespeare? Okay, you're all by yourself because I have tried. Like, there's a reason they redid all of those old plays um, in modern terms. Um, but, but here, I just plugged the same passage in. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's, is what the woman says. Alloweth him kiss me with the kisses of his, that from which we speak. Fur, thy love is better than wine. Thy anointing oils art fragrant. Thy name is oil did pour out. Argal virgins, I don't even know, love thee, draweth me after thee, alloweth us, runneth. The king hast, hath brought me into his cubiculos, <laughs> his cubicle, which is his bedroom, not like at the office. Like, uh, <laughs> listen, language matters. And here's what's interesting to me. Song of Songs is one of the most neglected books in the Bible. 
In fact, I would say that Revelation is probably even second to Song of Songs. There's a certain aversion to it, and some of that aversion actually comes from a sexual revolution that took place in the early church. I know you think we're in a sexual revolution now. They thought they were in a sexual revolution in the 70s. I'm just telling you, it's not new. There have been sexual revolutions going on since the creation of the world. But back in Jesus' day, if you were in the Greek-Roman culture, you were experiencing some things that would shock our sensibilities today. I know we often think it's never been as bad as it is in our world now, and some of that is an issue of access, but I can just tell you on the issue of perversion, it was worse. It was open and rampant sexual perversion, and not only that, but at the highest tiers of society, it was being promoted as enlightenment, that you had access, if you were wandering the streets, to almost anything you could imagine, and even the laws of the day did not prevent things that our laws still attempt to prevent in our day. And into that world, the church is born. Right Into that world, these people who are followers of Jesus, and Jesus spent a fair amount of time addressing sexual issues in his teaching, and his disciples and the apostles spent a fair amount of time addressing sexual issues in their preaching and teaching. It's why you will see the phrase sexual immorality show up so often. You have to just start to think, like, what is wrong with these people? Right? I mean, you read First and Second Corinthians, there's some issues going on in the church that I haven't yet experienced in churches, and I pray I never will um, experience in churches, but there were all kinds of issues. And they weren't simply happening, they were promoted in the Greco-Roman culture. But the church is born, and into this world, there seems to be a reaction against human sexuality in general that takes place early, early in the church. And so some of the early church fathers, guys like Origen, for example, around 250 AD, begin to write about these kinds of issues, and they head down a track that I do not believe the scriptures ever intended us to head down. But here's what Origen had to say. Everyone who is not yet rid of the vexation of the flesh and blood and not ceased to feel passion of his bodily nature should refrain from complete, refrain completely from reading the Song of Solomon. Translated until you're 97, and I'll find out, maybe even then you still can't read it, but unless you've gotten rid of all of the passions of the flesh, Right Until all of that's gone, you should not read this book. In other words, you should not read this book until long after it's helpful. <laughs> because it was actually intended to give you a picture. But the early church began to address this book in a particular way. And they began to say, this is dangerous literature. It's erotic literature. And you should not read it unless you've gotten rid of all other passions, which continued. Now, now listen, you need to understand this. Many of our early church fathers were brilliant. They brought extraordinary things to the table in terms of biblical understanding and theology that was being formed at the time and dealing with heresy in the church, but never confused what they had to offer with them being perfect in all of their theological views. In this particular area, personal preference began to take over. In fact, you move forward just a little bit to Jerome, or as he's known now, St. Jerome in 400. And St. Jerome, um, he and his buddies 
were super committed to dealing with the issue of lust in their lives. In fact, this is how committed they were. He was an aesthetic. He was someone who was extremely disciplined and chaste. But whenever they would have a lustful thought, they would launch themselves into thorn bushes and roll around. Just try it. The next time you have a lustful thought, go find some devil's club and launch yourself into it and roll around for a minute. You will forget about whatever it was you were thinking about just a moment ago, I promise you. They, they were committed, seriously committed. But here's what Jerome had to say eventually. It's time to cut down the forest of marriage with the acts of virginity. And you're beginning to understand why in the early monastic movement, in those early days, the people who were most spiritual did not participate in the sexual. The people who were the most committed, who were the most chaste, and they began to form ideas and doctrines around this concept. In fact, if you were to fast forward to Augustine, many of you have probably heard of Augustine before or read the writings of Augustine, but this was his perspective when it came to what Adam and Eve's sex life must have been like in the Garden of Eden because they were pure and chaste. It must have been a very cold and dutiful mechanical act without passion. Some of you are like, nailed it. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> perish the thought. I usually save those thoughts for third service. Perish the thought that there should have been any unregulated excitement or any excitement so great that they would have ever needed to resist desire. Imagine, honey, we got to stop. I'm starting to get excited. I'm thinking it should be the opposite. Like, let's go, right? Like, but, but there was this idea that passion in and of itself and passion that led to action was somehow unholy, unsanctified, specifically in this area of sexuality. Fast forward to Thomas Aquinas, Here's what he had to say, 1274. There are only two ways in which married persons can come together. You know what I mean by, okay, yeah, good. Can come together without any sin at all. Namely, number one, in order to have offspring. And two, in order to pay the marriage debt. Otherwise, it is always at least a venal sin. In other words, one that is maybe unintentional, doesn't necessarily need to be repented of, but still sinful or unholy in and of itself. So there's only two reasons that you should come together right now. There are only two reasons, and it's, it's in order to have children, which is the biblical you know, uh, expectation or desire. Uh, but, but then the other one is to fulfill your duty as a spouse. So next time the time comes, just be like, I just want you to know, I'm not doing this because I want to be with you. <laughs> I'm hoping either we have a baby or that you will check my bill off and I paid my debt. Um, let's go. Right? Like, but it's dealing with this issue of the fear of the passion that's involved in this particular part of the relationship. And so the only two reasons you can come together without any real sin is for these two reasons, except that isn't what the scriptures say. I mean, you look into the Psalms and the Proverbs, and they say things like, may the wife of your youth always satisfy you. May her hmm, always 
satisfy. Like, it gets pretty detailed. You can read it for yourself later. Um, I didn't want to embarrass my dad. He's here. So, um, here's my observation. The early church fathers' views on sexuality led to many significant errors in belief and practice. I want to be clear. There are things that I have taught over the years that I was so glad we weren't live streaming back then and it wasn't recorded. There are many things that I've taught that are recorded on these old things called tapes um, that I'm like, I don't know that I believe that anymore. It's, it's not uncommon. I'm just saying there were many things they believed early on about these that actually produced major problems for us in the church. And we avoided a topic that God actually speaks about a lot to our own harm and to the harm of our culture. In fact, some of those things are these. The forbidding of unregulated passion in the act of sex. There were lots of rules and laws around it, what days you could and couldn't. In fact, it worked out to somewhere around only 50 days in the year it was permitted. The perpetual virginity of Mary, that not only was Mary a virgin when she gave birth to Jesus, she had never been with a man, it was a supernatural birth, but that she could not have ever participated in this act. And so when you see what the scriptures clearly describe as Jesus' siblings, the text actually means his cousins. But the scriptures are clear, but it's all rooted in this idea that Mary could have never participated in this and continued to be the holy virgin, or the celibacy for clergy, the spiritual people were the ones who did not marry and engage in this act, the despiritualization of marriage, and the allegorizing of the Song of Songs. In fact, one theologian had this to say, this song must either be attributed to the Spirit as the chief author of it, though Solomon was the penman, or we must say it was not only penned but invented merely by some man led by his own spirit. But what other spirit can so speak of Christ and the church? This song is not to be taken properly or literally. That is, as the words do at first sound. Don't take it at face value. As the words do sound. But it is to be taken and understood spiritually, figuratively, and allegorically as having some spiritual meaning contained under these figurative expressions made use of throughout this song. This wasn't predominantly the Jewish view about the Song of Songs. The ones who actually put it in the canon of the Old Testament scripture originally. In fact, in the Mishnah, here's what it has to say in the debate about the Song of Songs. For the whole world is not as worthy as the day on which the Song of Songs was given to Israel. For all the writings are holy, but the Song of Songs is the holy of holies. Like, don't miss it. They believed that it had application in regards to your relationship to God, but they also recognized that this was overtly about healthy sexual relationships. Which brings me to do's and don'ts. If you want an incredible list of do's and don'ts, Exodus 19, Leviticus 18, I would not read it with your kids, I'll tell you that much. Like, it gets into painful detail about every possible perversion when it comes to sexual things. And almost the entire list is, here's what you don't do. In fact, it's probably what you've heard most of your life in the church. Here's what you don't do. Because we have no problem talking about it in very 
practical, applicable terms when it comes to what we don't do. And yet we very rarely hear conversation in this area in particular about what we should do. But passages like Romans chapter 13, verse 13, don't participate in the darkness of wild parties and drunkenness or in sexual promiscuity and immoral living or in quarreling and jealousy. Or passages like 1 Corinthians 6.18, run from sexual sin. Or Ephesians 5.3, let there be no sexual immorality, impurity, or greed among you. Such sins have no place among God's people. Or Colossians 3.5, have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. Or 1 Thessalonians 4.3, God's will is for you to be holy, so stay away from all sexual sin. Here's all the boundaries. Here's all the guardrails. Stay away from these things. The scriptures talk a lot about this area of human sexuality. But here's the question that I have. If scripture addresses unhealthy sexuality, shouldn't we also expect it to address what is healthy in this regard? rather than just having to infer from the don'ts what the do's must be. And I actually believe we've done a disservice to the body of Christ by placing this in the allegory category because it explicitly speaks in a poetic way, in a dramatic way, to what that relationship looks like when passion and desire are awakened at the right time. Here's my observation. Although Song of Songs is not about sex, it is about human sexuality in its fullest expression. Which brings me to about verses also. When you're interpreting the scriptures, you really have to ask the question, what is this passage about? It's the art of interpretation. Every passage of scripture has an intended meaning. It actually has one interpretation, but it also has many applications. There are ways in which that passage could be applied in our lives, maybe in areas that the scriptures don't say anything about. For example, what are you going to watch on TV this weekend? You're not going to find the word, which isn't a word, I guess, TV in the Bible, uh, right? Because you know why, right? They didn't have them. But you will find lots of passages about what you set before your eyes, what you choose to dwell on and think on, what you take in and what comes out as a result. You'll find lots of passages about that that could apply to all areas of life. But the passage is about something in particular. There's an interpretation, but there's many applications. And one of the things that's happened in church world over the years is this line of thinking among preachers and teachers that everything in the Bible is about Jesus. Maybe you've heard it said before, like you look at this book and and they'll say something along these lines. It's all about Jesus, which I understand what's being said when that's being said. But as soon as I give you this thought, it's going to totally make sense to you. Wait, it isn't. It's about God, the son. It's about Jesus. Isn't some of it about God, the father? Is any of it about God, the spirit? Or is it all about one person in the Trinity? 
This is taken from the idea when Jesus is on the road to Emmaus with these couple of disciples. He's After his resurrection, um, he's got his identity hidden from them, and they're walking on the road, and he's telling them, and this is what it says in the text, he reveals to them in the scriptures, in the law, and in Moses, and the prophets, he reveals to them all of the things concerning himself. But what he's doing is he's revealing to them all of the places where the Messiah was prophesied. He's letting them know that I am the one who has fulfilled these things versus showing them every Bible verse and telling them how that Bible verse is explicitly about him and him alone. And this idea has been taken. And what happens when you do that is you begin to read every passage through a particular filter that may not necessarily be an accurate interpretation or application of that passage in your life. I'll give you an example, because you don't look like you're convinced yet. Nobody said amen, and so I'm just going to keep talking until I hear one amen in the room. Okay, we'll move on. No, uh, actually, I can't. we got to go here. Romans 8, verse 15. This is a passage that has been um, really powerful, significant in my own life um, over the years. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba, Father. And in our journey as a family, being involved in foster care and being involved in adoption, that process, that journey, there is nothing I have done in at least the past 20 years that I can think of that has taught me more about the message of the gospel than that process, that journey for our family. I've just discovered things about God, about the love of the Father, about what it means to be adopted, about that process, about terminating old rights. Like all the things that I've discovered along that journey have been so powerful for me. And this verse isn't about adoption. It's using adoption to describe what our relationship with God is like. And here's what I will tell you. You won't find a Bible verse that tells you how the adoption process should work. It doesn't, it doesn't tell you, like, when are the moments, how should Office of Children's Services function, all of those kinds of things. We could infer things from the love of God. We could infer things from the Scriptures, but the Scriptures don't explicitly give instructions for how the adoption process works. It uses adoption as an illustration of what it means to be in relationship with God, that he brought us into his family even though we weren't natural-born children, and we have all the same rights and the same benefits that the natural-born child has, right? It's a vivid picture, but don't mistake this as explicitly a verse about adoption, right? So you could make application, you could infer things from it, but it actually has an intended meaning. Now, here's the principle. Although all of our life should display the character of Christ, this does not mean every scripture is simply an allegory about Christ, In fact, God loves to speak to the details in our lives. He loves to speak to the day-to-day, the nitty-gritty, the real things we experience in real life, and we shouldn't draw the allegory out of every single passage. We should get the intended meaning and then apply it in real life to our situation. So I'll give you another example. Ephesians chapter 5 begins this way, verses 1 through 4. Imitate God, therefore in Really? If I'm going out shooting, imitate God in everything you do because you are his dear children. Live a life filled with love following the example of Christ. 
So all of my life should be putting on display in some form or fashion what it means to be loved by God, to love others as God loves them, that I should live my life as an illustration. And Ephesians 5 is a passage that goes on to talk about the marriage relationship specifically. It's a passage I used to use in weddings a lot. We don't use it anymore because it has this word submit in it. And of course, that's an evil word. Um, uh, so it, I'll, just, I'll just say this. When you get to the rest of Ephesians chapter 5, and you get to the instructions to wives and the instructions to men. There are twice as many words in the instructions to men as there are instructions to women in that passage. And there's probably a really good reason because it takes men twice as long to get it typically. Uh, right? Uh, but, but I can just tell you, the instruction to men, while this idea of honoring and submitting is in the instruction to women, here's the instruction to men. Die. <laughs> and it isn't the like, I'm going to bow up. Somebody starts shooting bullets. I'll, I'll take a bullet for you. It's like, no, well, you take the dishes for her. That, that's like daily living your life like Christ did for you, laying it down without any selfish ambition to serve this other person, to see them experience the love of God, right? Like, it's pretty explicit what men are required to do in this passage. And you get towards the end of Ephesians chapter 5, and this is what it says. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Just a side note here, honey, if he's still living in the basement with his mom, don't marry him just yet. Like, let him get his own place. Um, but, but there's this leave and cleave idea. You can also leave and still not leave. You know what I'm talking about? Like, but there's this idea the two of them are to become one, a new functioning unit together. This is a great mystery, which everyone who's married knows that's true. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So again, I say, each man must leave, must love his wife, not leave, love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. I discovered this several years ago because I often thought about the marriage relationship as the thing that fulfilled me. Uh, I'm going to find the one who completes me, or in, you know, famous words, whoever it was, you are my density, like <laughs> destiny. Like I, the, we were supposed to be together. I need you. You complete me, that sort of idea. But when I realized that the marriage relationship, my marriage relationship was actually about something much bigger than my personal satisfaction, gratification, or fulfillment, all of a sudden, a whole bunch of things made sense. You know what this passage is saying? That the marriage relationship is a real relationship. It's a practical relationship, but it's actually a living functioning illustration to the world of what it looks like to be in relationship with the living God. And now you know why marriage has been under attack since the creation of the world. Because if you can undo an entire generation's ability to understand what the family looks like, you can undo their ability to understand what the scriptures mean. Because they're written in familial language. God is our father. We are his children. We are the bride of Christ. He is the groom. The language of the scriptures is written in familial language. And if the enemy can undo your ability to understand what the scriptures mean, when they say like a father disciplines his children, so the Lord disciplines you. We got a whole generation of people who are like, I don't know what you mean because my dad disciplined me because he was angry, because he was mad. 
It was clear to me it was not for me. It was to get it off of his chest. Just to be clear, I'm not talking about my dad. You know, like he's right there. But, but, but I have a whole generation as a youth pastor who didn't know what that meant. Or when Paul writes, he says, like a nursing mother cares for her child, so I care for you. If I could undo the picture of the marriage relationship, I could undo a generation's ability to understand this word when they read it. And you've seen it happen, and I've seen it happen, and it's not new to our generation. But that relationship is about something much bigger than my personal satisfaction and gratification. Mm, that's a good word, preacher. Oh, tell me about it. It's convicting to me every time I say it. Um, which brings me to uncommon sense. We're going to wrap up here today. I want to just give you um, three principles that you can draw out of these first three chapters in the Song of Songs, but it's practical wisdom for passionate people because we are passionate people. You just wait. Elections are getting ready to happen again on a presidential level. We are crazy. Like, we are passionate people, and this is practical wisdom for passionate people. And the goal is not to do away with all passions and desires. The goal would be to bring them under the lordship of Jesus so we could fully experience what they were actually intended for. And in the Song of Songs, he's going to give some real practical points. I would encourage you, take the time, um, understand the structure of how the play is laid out, understand who the characters are. There's these daughters of Jerusalem, all of her friends are going to be her bridesmaids someday. And then there's the shepherdess and there's the shepherd and there's the king who is actually the shepherd you discover. I mean, take some time and, and really read through it. Um, I won't embarrass all of you today by reading through all of it together right now, um, but, but I do want to draw a couple of things out. And the first one is this. In the first three chapters, in chapter 3, verse 5, is sort of the closing of a particular scene in the Song of Songs. But in chapter 2 and in chapter 3, there's a phrase that's repeated a couple of times. And it's really an important phrase. Here's what it says. Promise me, O women of Jerusalem, by the gazelles and wild deer, not to awaken love until the time is right. It's repeated again in chapter 3, verse 5. Promise me, O women of Jerusalem, by the gazelles and wild deer, not to awaken love until the time is right. And there's some disagreement over what this passage actually is referencing. There are some who believe that this passage is actually referencing, don't wake up my lover until he's ready to wake up. But, but when you look at the text itself, the vast majority of translations do not go there with it. They actually go to this place that is saying, there is a right time for this desire to be unlocked. A new skill gets unlocked at a particular, and you should wait for the right time. And here's what I want to tell you. Our culture is doing everything in its power to make that time as early as possible in the lives of our children. Wake it up now. You had some thoughts as a kid in elementary school. You wondered if you were a boy or if you were a girl, or you had these thoughts of attraction towards somebody that we would now just call friendship, but they are intentionally being pushed in a direction to wake this up before the time is right. And it produces confusion and it produces brokenness over and over. It doesn't matter whether it's pornography. I can remember going into a, um, uh, into a, a gas station um, I don't know if I ever told my mom about this, but here we go. Uh, going into a gas station with one of my cousins when we were young, and, um, and, and we knew we couldn't get our hands on, you know, like, really bad stuff. But there was certainly a Sports Illustrated 
swimsuit magazine in there somewhere. And early in life, like one of, one of my aunts was an avid reader of, they call them romance novels. I don't even know why they call them novels. But anyways, like, I, and, and just the covers of them alone, right? And now I'm like, hmm, wonder what it says inside this book. It's a total mystery to me, right? Like, um, that, that those things, we live in a culture that wants to wake it up way too soon. And it's produced, almost for everyone in this room, I would imagine, it's produced problems over and over again. And the Song of Songs is saying, listen, this is so beautiful. It's so precious. It's so good. Don't wake it up too soon. Think about what you're letting your kids watch. Think about the things you're engaging in. Just, just pause for a moment. Don't wake it up too soon because it'll get perverted if you do. This is the principle. To prematurely awaken sexual passion will always lead to a perversion of its purpose in our lives. Because desires are unlocked that can't righteously be fulfilled right now. And so I hear men say this all the time. I need to just get married so I can deal with this lust issue in my life. I'm like, clearly you've never talked to a married man, right? Like, <laughs> and, and here's, here's the thing. Here's what, you, here's what you need to know. Lust always wants what it can't righteously have. And when you get married it will still want what it can't righteously have. It's the nature of the beast. But when it gets woke up back here, it produces brokenness and perversion in our lives over and over again. Here's the second passage. Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 15. This one has been a life verse for me. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Catch all the foxes, those little foxes, before they ruin the vineyard of love, for the grapevines are blossoming. Not only does every fur trapper love this passage, but it is about little things. You think about a vineyard, if you've ever driven by a vineyard, you think about hundreds and hundreds of acres of grapevines, and you realize that the number of actual grape plants that are in that vineyard are relatively small compared to the area that they cover. But these little foxes would get into the vineyards, and when the grapes are beginning to grow, the sweetness coming out of the bark, they would nibble at the bark at the bottom and thus kill row after row after row of fruit that would have been coming in that season. And the passage is addressing these things that you and I think are little things, and it's saying they are not little things. Here's, here's what you need to know. The enemy whether it's through, I just, I have an issue with fantasizing about other people or about someone specific, or maybe it's just a little issue with pornography or whatever it is, whatever it is, wanting someone other than my spouse, right? whatever it is, you believe you can keep it at bay. You believe it's just a little fox, but what he's saying is you need to understand it has an intention and will not be satisfied until every fruit from your life is removed. The enemy comes for this purpose, to kill, to steal, and to destroy. And he is never satisfied until that is done. Don't fool yourself. The little things are not little things. The principle is this. Little indiscretions left unaddressed will lead to significant loss in our lives over and over again. Don't fool yourself. I know, you think you got it under control. Just a little fox, I can take it. It's got a goal. Just know that. 
Here's the last one. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 and 8. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Here's the principle. We cannot harvest where we have not sown. We love to think that we can. We believe that I can sow in this field, but I'm going to go harvest in that field. But you actually get to harvest from the field that you're sowing in. There's a harvest coming, and the question you have to ask is, what will that harvest be based on what I've been sowing into the field? I experience this frequently when I'm talking with um, men in particular who have broken trust in their relationship in some way. And they come to me and they're like, man, I did something stupid. I did something terrible. I've broken trust in my relationship with my spouse. And, and man, I, I just want you to know, I went to her and I told her I was sorry. And I have repented. And a whole month has gone by and she has not forgiven me. And I'll usually ask the question like, well, how long do you think it took you to get to that point of destruction? Oh man, it started when I was a teenager and so I usually just say something like this, well, then buckle up, buttercup, because as long as it took you to get in that position, it may take you that long to get out of that position. Are you willing to put in the time, because trust is only built one way, by faithfulness over time, are you willing to put in the same amount of time to rebuilding it as you put into destroying it? And if the answer to that isn't yes, you better pause for a moment. Now, maybe she's super gracious and she's super kind and she's willing to forgive you. Man, that's awesome. But the commitment level on my part. I sowed in this field for a long time and I'm reaping a harvest from it. Now, I actually have to begin sowing in a new field and a day of harvest will come. Even if she never forgives me and I have to move on into other things in my life or he never forgives me and I got to move on to other things in my life, even if that happens, I will still reap a harvest from sowing in a field of righteousness. But I cannot reap where I have not sown. That's the principle. Song of Songs is calling you and I in these early stages to have some discretion, have some caution. That's why the whole idea of like, just practice date, move in with somebody and see if the marriage thing works. It's why it doesn't actually produce what it promises. It actually is testing some things, waking some things up before the time is right. And God's simply saying, he's just saying, I need you to obey me so I feel good about myself. He feels just fine about himself, in case you were wondering. He's actually saying, I know what's best for you because I created you. I want you to thrive. I want your harvest to be something that is going to blow your mind in all the best ways. And in this area of sexuality and passion and desire, he's laying out a template, even in the Song of Songs, for what that looks like so that you and I could experience it for all that it's actually intended to be. Amen? I'm going to invite you to stand with us. We only got two weeks in the Song of Songs. I'd encourage you to spend some time reading it. You're hard-pressed to find a commentary that's over 15 years old that doesn't treat it as just an allegory. I'm telling you, it was intended to be something that was overtly passionate, uh, overtly sexual in its content, and overtly beneficial for you and I in our relationship. So Jesus, we just say thank you. Thank you for your word. That while all of scripture is about God, it's 
his story. You also reveal yourself over and over again in it. And you reveal to us who we are and what you've called us to be. May we become attentive to the little things knowing they are big deals. May we begin to sow in a brand new field so that we could reap a harvest from that field and that we would have faithfulness over time. And would you give us the necessary cautions and pauses that we not awaken something before the time is right. We ask all this in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Our prayer ministry teams are going to be available on both sides here. Also, if you did not grab one of these, it's not a refrigerator decoration. We want you to take these, hand them out to both your friends, invite them into our Easter services and the weeks coming up. Church in the Rock, we love you. Grace and peace to you. You are dismissed. Thank you for listening. For more of our podcasts and to discover how you can connect, visit us at churchak.org or download our Church on the Rock AK app from either iTunes or Google Play. Thank you.